Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Journeys into Whiteness, episode nine. We almost to double digits with this thing out here. I thank you as always for tuning in. If you're a repeat listener, I cannot express my appreciation towards you enough. If you are a new listener, thank you for checking me out. I hope you like what you hear and I hope you stick around. So, let's jump right back into our conversation because episode nine, for those of y'all who have been listening faithfully, once again, thank you, y'all are the best, is the final chapter in this three-part saga that is my grandfather's Virginia history textbook that was used across the state of Virginia in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and in some cases into the 1980s. And it has been explained and described and made painstakingly clear how much this textbook advances a white supremacist ideology, supports a lost cause view of the past, and how it perpetuates the idea of whiteness as not only normal, but as superior and as the default setting for everything political, economic, sociological, cultural in our country. We've looked at how the book describes slavery itself as a system, how it describes or doesn't describe the racial hierarchies that underpin slavery. We've talked about how enslaved people are depicted. We've looked at how this book describes the causes of the Civil War and the Civil War itself. And we've talked about how the book is incredibly silent about all sorts of really disturbing and distressing racial issues that cropped up in Virginia and in the South and in the United States as a whole after the conclusion of the Civil, the Civil War. So we've broken down a lot about this textbook. And in today's episode, I don't want to keep flogging this horse. So we're just going to put a bow on this book in a couple of ways. I'm going to talk about a few issues with the textbook that haven't come up in it in episodes seven and eight. And then I want to spend most of my time in this episode, if possible. And the reason I say if possible is because I already know it's going to be tricky for me. But I want to spend most of my time in episode nine talking about not the book, but the man who wrote it. Because as those of you all who have been with me from the beginning know, this is... This is a personal journey for me, and it's meant to be. And so talking about the textbook is only part of that journey. For me, Jimmy Lincoln, talking about the man who wrote this textbook, my grandfather, is another really important piece to our discussion. So with that being said, let me jump into our agenda for today. And the first thing I actually want to do with y'all is to share a very, very, very brief mini bibliography of just some names, not even titles, because there's the internet these days, you can Google these names, of scholars and authors 
who have done some really good work in the area of looking at American history in all of its warts, looking at the history of slavery in America and the history of white supremacy in America and the legacies of those two and the history of Jim Crow and the history of anti-slavery and the civil rights movement of the 20th century. In other words, historians, authors, scholars who have told stories that won't be found in my grandfather's textbook or any textbook like it. So this is especially maybe, maybe not necessarily, but it's, I'm thinking maybe if you are of a certain generation and your education in public school included textbooks like my grandfather's or similar to my grandfather's, and you might be thinking to yourself, you want to hear other narratives, other perspectives, this list is for you. But even if you weren't taught with my grandfather's textbook, it's very possible and I would guess very likely that many of the themes we've discussed that arise from my grandfather's textbook have still influenced how you were taught American history. And you might be saying to yourself, what are the stories that weren't included? What are the narratives and the approaches and the analyses that I didn't get to hear when I was in high school or in middle school or in elementary school or quite possibly in college or university, depending on who your professor was? So just some names for you to Google. This is not meant to be an all-inclusive list. But any and all of these people have done some amazing, incredible scholarship around the issue of the role of African-Americans in American history, or the role of black folks in American history. So first of all, a great place to start is ta Coates. He writes mostly about modern-day social issues, but he's got a really amazing essay on reparations that appeared in The Atlantic a few years ago. And in that essay, he covers a lot of historical ground. So Coates is a great author to check out. And just about everything he writes is phenomenal. Another place to check out is the 1619 Project that is... I guess, sponsored, for lack of a better word, by the New York Times. It is the brainchild of Nicole Hannah-Jones and the 1619 Project. And that year is obviously a reference to when enslaved people of African descent first officially showed up in the English colonies. The um, 1619 Project is totally digital and has articles and discussions and graphs and just a whole multimedia layout relating to all sorts of issues having to do with race and black people and racism and anti-racism and white supremacy and whiteness and what it all means in terms of American history. Other people to check out, David Blight has written a lot about Reconstruction. He has a really solid book on race and Reconstruction and its legacy for us today. Eric Foner has written more books than, than I have fingers. Um, many of those books deal with reconstruction and race and and he's a great author he's very readable and very accessible even has some books that that combine imagery and text in a way that's real creative and makes it more than just a your typical kind of history book ibram kendi i think very well known name in the summer of 2020 but his books often reach back in the past to make some really cogent points about the present. So check him out. Richard Wormser, Henry Louis Gates Jr. 
Gates in particular has written a, a ton of books, but especially books that provide a great overview of Reconstruction and Jim Crow and the end of the Jim Crow era. And who am I leaving out? Matthew Desmond, Ira Berlin, just some others that have written really powerful books about slavery and the life of enslaved people that are caught up in these systems. So uh, the nerd in me, despite the fact that this podcast is supposed to be real casual and real personal, felt like that based on what we discussed in episodes seven and eight, it would be remiss of me not to share some names so that you could really do some research on your own, some digging on your own. So there you go. There's, like I said, not an, an inclusive by any means, but just a real, real brief bibliography of some people to check out. Another note, and I heard this from a few listeners after episode seven. They asked about how my grandfather's textbook talked about women, how it talked about indigenous people, a.k.a. Native Americans or American Indians, how it talked about members of the LGBTQ plus community, how it talked about people with disabilities, and spoiler alert, it barely talks about those groups at all. It talks about Native Americans more than any other group, but much like his discussions of people of African descent, the way that Native Americans are described is extremely problematic. All the other groups I just listed are basically missing from my grandfather's textbook, so while I realize that in this podcast, I focused mostly on relationships between black and white, and I focused mostly on whiteness in terms of how it exists relative to blackness in this country. I do not want to give y'all, I do not want to give y'all the impression that A, this textbook isn't problematic on many fronts, or that B, whiteness is simple enough as to solely exist in reference to blackness. However, in the sake of kind of, in the name of keeping some thematic consistency and not spending hours and hours of your time, those other issues, those other subgroups that I just mentioned that didn't get discussed in the textbook, we're not going to go into depth about them, not because they don't matter, but because, as I mentioned, just for the sake of time and the sake of kind of thematic consistency, we're going to keep our eyes focused on this black white dichotomy, at least for the moment. All right, back to the book itself and what it does say. One thing that I mentioned in episode eight, and I mentioned it most specifically in reference to Robert E. Lee, but I just want to reiterate how white individuals are discussed in my grandfather's textbook. And though no one is praised in quite the way that Robert E. Lee is, except maybe Thomas Jefferson. My grandfather always had a tremendous amount of respect and, and adoration for Thomas Jefferson. But all of the white characters in this book are described in, for lack of a better word, positive terms. They're brave. They're honorable. They're honest. They're dedicated to the well-being of others, their family, the citizens of Virginia, the citizens of the United States. And the reason I bring that up is not to point out how historically we know that not to be true. 
uh, as a history teacher myself, I tell my students all the time, there are not angels and devils in history. There are not heroes and villains in history. There are only people. Now, there are people who are a lot more flawed than others, and there are people who it's a lot easier to dislike than others. But every single human that we study in history is complicated. And so none of that shows up in my grandfather's book, which is, we'll put that to the side for now. The reason I bring up the hagiographic treatment of so many of the white people in my grandfather's book, the reason I bring up the way that he talks about George Washington and George Mason and James Madison and Thomas Jefferson and Stonewall Jackson and Robert E. Lee is because when you put the treatment of these white heroes, these male white heroes, next to the treatment of every other type of human being, specifically black people in the book, that's when it gets really, really distressing and frustrating. Because if you're a white child sitting in a school classroom in Virginia in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, the people in my grandfather's book who look like you and have names like you are brave and heroic and adventurous and strong. But if you're sitting in a classroom in Virginia and probably elsewhere throughout the South in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and maybe even 80s, the characters that you read about do not look like you and do not have names like you. And so purely from a psychological standpoint, I need y'all to think about how powerful it is when one group of people, when white male children see themselves reflected gloriously and another group of children, or I should say many other groups of children, but especially in this case, black children, don't see the reflection at all. Think about the psychological impact of that. We're basically talking about the concept of representation. How are people who look like you represented? And in future episodes, we're going to talk about representation as it relates to popular culture, children's books, so on and so forth. But it matters in history books, too. It might matter more so in history books than in other areas, because so often in history books, even in modern day ones, whether we realize it or not, what we do are create heroes. And so often in our history books, those heroes look like me. But they don't look like my black brothers and sisters. They don't look like my brown brothers and sisters. Just something to think about. Moreover, the issue of representation pops up in my grandfather's book in a more literal way. When we talk about the imagery, the pictures that find their way into my grandfather's textbook. And what's really, really cool about his textbook I know I haven't said that much over the course of the last three episodes, but be that what it may, is that all of the pictures in his book are hand-drawn by the same, same artist. So they're these beautiful, what I would say look like pencil sketches with color. So there's a real cool visual consistency, stylistic consistency throughout the pages of the book. The problem is... That when you start to break down, when you start to quantify these pictures and who is being depicted and who is not, here's what happens. 
Of the 152 images in my grandfather's 318-page fourth-grade Virginia history textbook, of those 152 images, eight of them contain black people. So right there, that's about 5.2%, if my math is correct. It's very likely it's not. But I do know that the eight and the 152 are correct. So if you want to check the math on my percentages, go for it and let me know where I screwed up. Moreover, of those eight black people depicted in only one single picture is a black person depicted as the protagonist of the picture. So I repeat, only eight out of 152 pictures in my grandfather's Virginia history textbook even depict black people. And of those eight, only one is, the, is a black person the main character. And that's a picture of Booker T. Washington studying something at his desk. In every other picture, all seven of them, black people are extras. If it was a movie set, they would be in the background, they wouldn't have lines. The picture isn't focused on them. They are, unfortunately, in many ways, objects more than subjects. They are part of the setting, the scene, the background. But they are not where your eye is drawn. They're not driving the action of that picture. So once again, I want you to imagine what I just asked you to imagine when we talked about how White men are described using text. Now imagine that you're a black child in Virginia or you're a black child in South Carolina or you're a black child in Tennessee in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. And the textbook that is supposedly telling you the story of you, supposedly telling you the story of your country, of your community. And you can barely find anyone in that textbook who even looks like you. Think about what message that is sending to a nine-year-old or a 13-year-old or a 16-year-old. Think about, although maybe implicit, think about the power, the dangerous, awesome, disgusting power that is contained in that lack, that non-existence. Because we all know it's very possible that some of the students who were given this textbook, given my grandfather's textbook in fourth grade, never read a single word of it. They skimmed it. They had the page open, the book open to the correct page whenever their teacher told them to, but they never actually read the words. So maybe all my analysis from episodes seven and eight is kind of a moot point for students like that. However, I guarantee you they saw the pictures in this book. And I guarantee you those pictures had an effect on them. And I guarantee you, because there's a lot of research to support this, that the representation, or more accurately, the non-representation of black people in these pictures affected those students, even the students who weren't reading the textbook. And it affected black and white. It affected how they thought of themselves, and it affected how they thought of the people around them, and it affected how they thought of their country and their community. 
there's only one other line that I feel compelled to share with you guys today from my grandfather's textbook. And then we're going to wrap it up with what this book really, what the takeaway is from all this analysis before I talk about my grandfather as a man and more importantly, my relationship with him. Near the end of this textbook, at the end of a, a chapter, the second to last chapter, a chapter that's leading up, or third to last chapter, I apologize, a chapter that's leading up to the 20th century. My grandfather wraps up a chapter by saying, by saying this. Here it is, I quote, by 1900, the people of Virginia had rebuilt their state. They had put the war between the states behind them just as Robert E. Lee had asked them to do. And the reason I want to leave y'all with that quote is because it, it foreshadows where the discussion in the rest of this episode is going to go. And because that quote is so emblematic of how what my grandfather has really done with his textbook is not history so much as mythology. Because in order for him to write something like that, the idea that somehow Virginia had put the war between the states behind them, had put the Civil War behind them, is to imply that Jim Crow and segregation and lynchings and the eugenics movement and the civil rights movement and the massive resistance to the civil rights movement carried out by many white people and white groups and white communities across the state and how the systemic disenfranchisement of black voters across the state, how none of that occurred. To imply that the people of Virginia had put the Civil War behind them implies that the 20th century, that the history of Virginia in the 20th century isn't rife with examples of systemic racism and systemic intentional white supremacy. It serves, a sentence like that serves as a final, final eraser. And the more I thought about my grandfather's book, and the more I thought about the way slavery was described or not described, and the way the lives of enslaved people were not discussed, and the way the images, the actual pictures in the book consistently excluded black people. And the more I thought about that sentence I just read from near the end of his book, from the third to last chapter of his book, the more I thought about this notion of erasure. Because if I had to boil it down to one sentence, that's what my grandfather's textbook has done to black people and their experiences in our country from 1619 up until 1956. He has erased them. And in some ways, that's, that's more damaging, more insidious than if he had just attacked them outright. In other words, if this book was just filled with vitriol, 
and the most negative racial stereotypes you could think of. Calling black people all sorts of names. Then it would be easy for people to recognize that hatred. It would be easy for people to recognize that insecurity. And to look at this book as nothing more, nothing more than just blatant racist propaganda. To look at this book as, as we look today at the KKK. Or as we look today at some of the most obvious examples of, of people who were just blatant and explicit about their white supremacy. It would make the book perhaps scarier, but also easier to defeat. But that's not what my grandfather did. By erasing black people and the struggles they experienced, by erasing black people and the resilience they demonstrated, what he has done is perpetuated white supremacy, but done so in an in an in an implicit way. And because it's implicit, because it's seemingly benign, it's harder to recognize and therefore I would argue more powerful. There's a reason that there are school teachers in Virginia, especially at the elementary school level, who still read passages from his book. There's a reason that this book lasted more than two decades. It's, and one reason is because it's white supremacy and it's whiteness, although palpable and visceral, is not superficial and it's not obvious. And this book feels, at least at first glance, is very nice to everyone. And then it's only after you dig a little deeper and only after you have some really thoughtful conversations and self-reflection that you realize the reason it's nice to everyone is because everyone is such a limited list in this book. What he has done with his book is created a textual version of the Middle Passage. And just as the Middle Passage ripped hundreds of thousands, millions of individuals of African descent and ripped them from their language and their culture and their family and their traditions and their history, ripped them in some ways from their knowledge of self and who they were and erased their roots as individuals and as communities or at least attempted to erase their roots. In many ways, that's what my grandfather's textbook is doing or attempted to do, to simply erase black people from American history. Because if you erase black people, then you can also erase slavery and white supremacy. And white people who read this book can feel good about themselves. And so I think, if anything, that's my grandfather's biggest sin. Or that's my grandfather's book's biggest sin. Because we'll talk about him as a person in a few minutes. This utter erasure. This utter non-existence. That black people, in anything related to their experience, 
in, in and on the soil of the United States of America are non-existent. So I'll let y'all just think on that. And just keep in mind some of what we talked about with this textbook as you encounter books. And not just in school, but as you encounter literature and you encounter perspectives and narratives on the past. I want you to think about whose voice you're hearing and whose voice you're not hearing. Who is erased from the story? Now, all that being said, I think it is very clear that as a piece of history, I find this textbook to be disdainful. It's ability to perpetuate whiteness and white supremacy, its desire, its consequence of doing all that is really, really disheartening to me. That being said, my grandfather, the man I remember, in no way in my mind is a man who in any way would hold any amount of hatred towards any human being or group of human beings in his heart. So let me describe my grandfather as I remember him. He passed away when I was 11, I believe. My grandfather was always very hands-on with me and all of his grandchildren. And I don't mean in a literal sense. I mean in the way he interacted with us. And I grew up in Harrisonburg, Virginia. He was living in Harrisonburg most of his life. Remember, he's a history professor at James Madison University. He was the department chair of the history department at James Madison University for a better part of 20 years. So I was able to see him frequently growing up. And on every single occasion, it was my grandfather who would play with me and my brothers and play with me and my cousins whenever any of us were at his house where him and my grandmother lived. Now, my grandfather, my grandmother loved us and she was very sweet to us. But she didn't get down on all fours and play with us. She didn't take us out in the yard and play catch or play hide and seek. She didn't go down in the basement and play caroms with us. I used to love to play caroms with my grandfather. And we wouldn't use the, the little cues because I was too young to manipulate them well or maybe just too clumsy. We would flick the little caroms across the board using our fingers. And he would play as many games of caroms as I wanted to play. And I don't even remember if I won or lost. But I have nothing but good memories of my time with my grandfather. He was a man who, was, who never raised his voice. Never allowed anger to dictate how he acted. I adored this man. I adore this man. My adoration hasn't gone away despite the fact that physically he has. He was always kind and calm and compassionate and willing to extend grace to all those around him. He was one of the best men I've ever encountered. 
And I know some of my listeners might be thinking, well, that's partially because your memories were you as a child and a lot of people grow up loving their grandparents as children. That is true. However, not only do I have these memories of him as kind and gracious and compassionate and and just good. But those are the memories that hundreds, if not thousands of people who interacted with him have. Anytime I have met one of his former students, and I mentioned back in episode six, I believe, that some of my, my teachers when I was in school were former students of his. Anytime I've crossed paths with one of these people, they have gone out of their way to be effusive in their praise of my grandfather. And they talk about how much they enjoyed taking his classes, even if they weren't history majors. And they talked about how supportive and kind and gracious and humble he was. This is a man whose office was tucked away in the corner of my grandparents' house, in the corner of a basement of my grandparents' house, who could have, as an eminent scholar of history, as the department chair of the history department at James Madison University, as a member of Harrisonburg's city council, who could have commandeered any room in his house and had giant mahogany, a giant mahogany desk and bookcases and the smell of leather-bound books wafting through the air. He could have rubbed it in everyone who met him, rubbed it in their face that he was a professor, that he needed to be referred to as doctor. But no, this man had a humble desk situated in the corner of a semi-mildewy basement and the desk was clearly the desk of a scholar, but not the desk of an arrogant scholar who thought he was in any way better than anyone he came across. That was the grandfather I remember. That was the professor that so many of his students encountered. A man full of grace, full of kindness, full of compassion. And there's one other thing I learned about him recently as I was talking to my mother about this podcast and about my grandfather's textbook and about our family in general. And she told me that a few years after my grandfather had passed, she ran into a black woman in Harrisonburg. I believe it was at a JMU event, no less. And she didn't know who this black woman was, but somehow they were introduced and this black woman recognized my mom's name and she pulled my mom aside and she said, I just want to tell you how much your father, so this is my grandfather, this black woman said to my mother, I just wanted to tell you how much your father meant to me and that he was a really special person. And my mother, who had by this point in her life heard this many times from many people who had encountered my grandfather, wasn't surprised yet. But it's the second part of what this black woman told my mother that surprised my mother. This black woman told my mother, she said, the reason I think your father is so special is because late in his career, just before he retired, he went out on a limb and hired me as a member of James Madison University's history department, despite the fact that I was a black woman despite the fact that JMU is located in a small city in Virginia, in the heart of the Confederacy. And this black woman 
knew that my grandfather had gone to bat for her with the hiring committee and knew that he had recommended her. And the reason I'm pausing right now is because even though I have sketched out numerous notes about this podcast and I have my outline like I always do, I know it might not seem like I do, but I have an outline. But the reason I had to pause after that is because my brain is, the gears of my brain are are slowly coming to a stop. Because I'm left with one single question. And I'm going to articulate it inarticulately. But if this is the question blaring in my mind right now, and it's what the fuck? What do I do with these two competing, seemingly contradictory images of my grandfather? Everything from episodes seven and eight about his textbook that I talked about angers me and disappoints me at a core moral level. All of the ways that his textbook has glorified and perpetuated White supremacy. What do I do with that knowledge? That knowledge sits in one of my hands. And then in the other, I have this knowledge of a man who was unfailingly kind to every human being who crossed his path. Of a man who was unfailingly gracious and humble and loving. Of a man who in my heart I know is one of the best men I've ever encountered and probably ever will encounter. What do I do with these two competing images, these two opposite images that don't seem to have any relationship to each other? And the answer to that question of what the fuck is nothing. I don't do anything with them. I don't try to reconcile them. I don't try to make them fit together. Perhaps I try to understand them. And I think episode seven, eight, nine, you've seen what some of that understanding looks like. And in the past, I think I've reached for guilt and shame. But I found those emotions to be largely performative and also fairly useless when it comes to being accountable for the world that I'm helping to create in 2020, for the world I hope to create for my sons and their sons. That guilt and shame don't do much for me, and they certainly don't do much for my grandfather who's long since passed. And so I mean it. I don't do anything with this contradiction. I accept it, and yeah, it frustrates me. I really wish on some level he could be a hero. But then if he was a hero, he wouldn't be a man. He wouldn't be a human. He wouldn't be like the rest of us. And so by accepting the contradictions that are my grandfather, by accepting his contradictory nature, I'm hoping that it can remind me to accept Two other things. 
I'm hoping it can remind me to accept that that's the nature of our entire country. Are we the land of liberty? Are we the home of the brave? Are we the the land that has given birth to a representative democracy that has been copied around the world? Are we a land that values rights? And the answer is yes. Are we a land that has been blighted by systemic racism and white supremacy and by violent murder and the destruction of lives and cultures that aren't white and that aren't in the hands of people of European descent? And is that a legacy that we still have not owned up to? Yes. Both of those statements are true, or both of those questions are true. We are both, and we will always be both as a country. And so I'm hoping that my grandfather's example, the contradictions inherent in him, help me remember that about my country and help me remember that about my countrymen and about all people in general and about myself, that we are all, and I know this is going to sound either new agey or preachy or psychobabbly, I don't know, and I don't really care, but we are all a, just a bag of whatever the fuck can fit in that bag. We are all a mishmash of not only genetic material, but experiences and thoughts and fears and actions. And some of those things are laudable and praiseworthy and many of those things are not. And a whole heap of those things fall in between. But we as humans exist as contradictory beings. We exist within this multiplicity of experiences that make us all who we are. And so I'm, I will apologize to anybody tuning in to today's episode. If you were hoping that I was going to come to some grand epiphany about my grandfather, and about the role he played in perpetuating white supremacy and what that means for me. I'm not. The only understanding I have is that shit doesn't always make sense and that people don't always make sense and that people certainly don't fit in easy categories. And that's all right. I think I can live with that most days because I'm going to have to because that's the truth. Contradiction is at the essence of who he was. And more importantly, it's at the essence of who we are as Americans and who we are as human beings. So I'll leave y'all with this. If you were to ask me tomorrow when I wake up or in 30 years, when I may be on a deathbed similar to how he was many years ago, Fighting cancer, I remember going to visit him at the age of 11. Cancer had devoured his insides, and you couldn't tell it one bit. At least not, I couldn't as an 11-year-old, because he wanted to talk about baseball. One of his favorite players growing up was Jimmy Fox. Jimmy Double X Fox, he said. And how magnanimous and brave and strong he was in that moment, when he only had a few more weeks to live. But he knew I was going away to summer camp, so he wanted to send me off with positive messages. When I am my grandfather's age, when I am in that place in my life, 
and my grandchildren come to ask me and they say, tell me about your grandfather. I know they're not going to ask me that, but just bear with me. And when I have to decide, was my grandfather the man who wrote a textbook seeped and steeped in lost cause mythology that perpetuated and continues to perpetuate white supremacy and systemic racism? Is he that man or is he the man that hired the first black professor in JMU's history department? And the only answer I have is yes. He is both of those people. We are both of those people. I thank y'all as always for sticking with me, following me down the twists and turns that are each episode. Really appreciate it because this was an episode that I wasn't looking forward to, but knew was at the heart of much of what this podcast is trying to do. Y'all can reach out to me as always. My email is jameslincoln313 at gmail. Love to hear from you. Your shout outs, your critiques, your criticisms, your questions, your stories, your experience with, with whiteness, experiences with whiteness. Keep your minds open. Keep your hearts open. Peace and love. I'm out.